that's the stories that our textbooks don't. I'm Ellen. And I'm Sam. And we're just here to cause chaos. <laughs> so, obviously recording this has gone perfectly well. Oh yeah, no snags in the road. This is not our second time recording this intro. <laughs> Mind you, it took us so long between time one and time two, I don't remember what menial question I asked you. You just kind of asked me how my week was, and I said it was fine, we're exhausted, and you have midterms. Yes, I do have midterms. Do not recommend. Grad school was my choice, and no one tried to talk me out of it. I I can't believe I let you go to grad school. What was wrong with me? Yeah, this is really your fault, Ellen. That makes sense. (laughs) I am living through the consequences of my own actions. God, I hate those. Right? I had my last official sword lesson before we have the pumpkin smashing party. That's exciting. Oh, yes. So in two weeks, there will be some prime video of me destroying pumpkins. Good. I expect it. Of course. So do all of our followers. (laughs) (laughs) All both of our moms. My mom loves to see any pictures of me, so she's pumped as well. Actually, I don't even know if my mom's still listening to this podcast. (laughs) My parents are. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. I think at least one of my sisters still is. (laughs) (laughs) Sam, when you feel down, remember, we are one of the most popular history podcasts in Iceland. I never should have told you that. But I love it so much. I know you do. So, we are past our spooky season slump, which means that I don't have to research ghosts and murderers anymore. First off, how dare you call it a slump? You know That was a high point. It was a high point, except for the fact that I was making a true crime podcast for like a hot minute there. That is true, and I was not. (laughs) And like... Researching for a true crime podcast is just not the mood I signed up for. That's fair. But, you know what we're doing today instead? Who are we doing today? Mata Hari. She's famous. She is famous. And this was a set of notes I started like a few weeks ago and then pivoted. And you know what? This was the kind of week where I needed some half-finished notes already before I started. We are obviously thriving. Yes. I don't have a midterm every week for the next three weeks or anything. (laughs) Just out of curiosity, what do you know about Matahari? Very little. I think she's Indian, but she could be literally any other nationality. Cool. Yeah. No, not Indian. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, Did she commit any crimes? Um. Yes. Oh, I didn't like the the lack of confidence in that yes. <laughs> that means it's going to be a really pathetic crime. No, it's not a pathetic crime. It's I'm not sure she committed it. Alright, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. You'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. Well, in like half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's start at the beginning, as we always do. Margaretha Gertrudia Zell was born in Leeuwarden, Netherlands, on August 7th, 1876. 
Her father was Adam Zell and her mother was Antje Zell. And I have to say, that was, like, I said about five words in there that were so aggressively Dutch that I will take no criticism. You know what? It's better than your French. <laughs> you know what? I agree with that. Sam, the cat wants to get in my room. Can I let the cat in my room? I mean, how much is the cat going to distract you while I talk? Not that much. I'm going to let Theo in. In his excitement to jump up on my bed, I might have punched him in the face. <laughs> but he's fine, and he is a good boy. Yeah, you are a good boy. Alright, so, the Dutch. <laughs> yes. Margarethe Zell was in this, like, super poor family in this hard-to-pronounce town in the Netherlands. Her father was a hat merchant who went bankrupt when she was very young, and her mom died when she was only 15. And at that point, she was separated from her siblings and sent to live with a distant relative. Ah, uh, that always goes well. Yeah. No. We're not starting off super hot here. To recap, we have a 15-year-old girl who is separated from everyone she knows, living with a relative who's only like vaguely related to her. Her mom's dead. Her dad's bankrupt. She's not having a good time. And I have a cat on my lap. <laughs> Glad that's part of the recap. This is important information. Oh, I completely agree. At this point in our story, our young heroine realized that she was, like, like so hot. Like, she's so attractive. Okay. And she pretty much declares that she wasn't played a lot of, like, good cards in life. And so her sexuality is going to be her ticket to, like, the good life. You know, do what you gotta do, girl. Oh, I respect this 100%. So at the very young age of 19, she saw an ad in the newspaper for an army officer who was looking for a wife. This man was Rudolf McLeod. He was 21 years older than her. And she decided to send him a striking picture of herself in reply to the ad. I'm not a big fan of how this is going. You mean you don't... Uh, like the idea of someone literally mail-order briding themselves? Yeah, and then she sent him, like, a pin-up picture? Like, what? Yeah. So he immediately was like, hard yes. I am the kind of person who put an ad in the newspaper for a wife. This is better than I could have expected. Yeah. <laughs> he hit the jackpot. Also, the description of him I found was that he was bald and mustached. <laughs> so, do with that what you will. These are the important things you need to know about him. Yep. And at this point in time, Margaretha moved to the Dutch East Indies to be with him. Specifically, he was in Malaysia. Wow. And they married on July 11th, 1895, when she wasn't actually quite 19 yet. Wait, so an 18-year-old moved halfway across the world to marry a man 21 years older? Yes who she met because he put an ad in the newspaper looking for a wife. Wow. And she just trusted this. She's like, yeah, this seems legit. Mm -hmm. But while she's in Malaysia, she was able to gain a very superficial knowledge of Indian and Javanese dances, which will come back later and be important. <laughs> so their marriage only lasts nine years. Why? Rudolph was a very heavy drinker who would often fly into rages because uh, Margaretha was really, really hot and got a lot of attention from the other army officers. 
So, like, they weren't necessarily happy. (laughs) But during this time, they had two kids, a daughter and a son. Norman John, their son, was born in 1897, and Louise Jean, their daughter, was born in 1898. But unfortunately, in 1899, both children were poisoned. What? By what? By who? So... It's believed to have been done by a household worker or a nanny who is, like, taking care of the children. And the reason's really unknown. Some sources speculated that it's because they want a revenge for mistreatments by Rudolph. But more or less, someone in their household poisoned both children and Norman John died. Louise Jean survived, but, like... This was a two-year-old and a one-year-old at that point. You know it's gonna be a weird tale when the children getting poisoned, it's just like a footnote. Oh yeah, I know. There was not- like, I really- I looked for more information on this poisoning because I was like, that's some juicy information. There wasn't any. Like, that. that's just what I've got for you. Okay. Eventually, her husband's tour with the Dutch East India Company ended, and the family moved back to the Netherlands. And about two years after that, her husband left her and took their daughter. Margaretha tried to get custody, but woman had no rights at this point, so she was denied very quickly and actually never saw her daughter again. Oh, that's so sad! Yeah, Louise unfortunately died at the very young age of 21 in 1919. Um, I, I, that's all the information I've got on her. Oh, hope she wasn't poisoned again. Honestly, yeah, she can't have had, like, a, like that's a weird start to your life, getting poisoned when you're one. But that's all we're really going to talk about her family. That was literally just, like, the preamble to her life. This is actually the start of the story. She just had, like, a really wild first couple years before all this. <laughs> because at this point in 1905, she is single and she moves to Paris all by herself. Ooh. Yeah, fancy. She very quickly became the mistress of a French diplomat who helped her hatch the plan to support herself by dancing. Okay. We stand. Yeah, no, we super stand. In Paris, she became the very first exotic dancer. I'm just thinking, I know of, of a few famous exotic dancers... I don't think that Matahari is one of them. I don't. Is that what she's known for? Because I don't think it is. <laughs> no, it, it, it 100% is. What? She's the first exotic dancer. That's it. That's. I mean, there's more to the story. Like, we've got a lot more information coming, but. <laughs> That's like the title. Okay. <laughs> Keep going. What else did she do? She's dancing in Paris. Yeah, no, she's an exotic dancer in Paris. She claimed to have Oriental and Far East ancestors to make herself, like, seem exotic. Mind you, uh, she's from the Netherlands, but she lived in Malaysia for nine years, and so that's what we're rolling with. Just a dash of little of racism. Yeah, just like a dash. Because people in Paris knew very little about Oriental and Far East things, and so they completely believed her. <laughs> They're like, yeah, this white woman with a Dutch accent. Yeah, definitely from Asia. Oh yeah, she told people that she was born in a sacred Indian temple and that she was named by priestesses. And that's when she started calling herself Matahari, which means Eye of the Day in Indonesian. 
She even <laughs> called her exotic dance a temple dance. That's so funny, though. Yeah. And so pretty much this was just, like, a kind of edited version of a dance she learned while she was living in Malaysia with her husband. <laughs> and it's it's just a strip tease. Like, more or less what she would do is she was draped in all of these veils, and she would slowly take one veil off at a time as she, like, danced until she was wearing nothing but, like, beads over her boobs. And people believed that this was, like, a temple dance. Yes. Oh, God. She was known to only show her butt on stage, though, because that was considered a very attractive part of the woman in this time. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, uh, men have always been into butts. Thick with two C's is not a new thing. Wow. You planned that joke, didn't you? You know what? Sometimes I write them <laughs> in front of my notes, and you don't need to call me out like that. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't know why we're surprised that men have always liked butts. That's not... Well, this made a lot of sense to me, actually, because, like, this is the time of, like, the bustle and the petticoat and all that kind of stuff, and it's like, yeah, people were really trying to, like, make it look like they had a bump back there. (laughs) You know, whatever you can to get that 2C look. (laughs) Also, I just found a note in one of the articles about her that her most... One of her most famous performances was when she did... She performed at a garden party on top of a white horse. And I just, I desperately want to know the logistics of this. Like, how do you drop veils off yourself while riding a white horse and, like, look majestic and beautiful? There is, like, bareback riding where you're just, like, standing on a horse. But to dance as well? I know. I, like, I need more information on this one. I just need more information in general. (laughs) On what? Ask questions. No, I'm still reeling from the... Yeah, her kids were poisoned. Casually. (laughs) Moving on. Honestly, so was I. (laughs) I really tried to find more information. (laughs) She took her show on the road. She performed as far away as Russia and was like a sensation all over Europe. Like, from Paris to Russia, she was performing. Vienna, Germany, like, all the places. And during this time, she also took lovers all over Europe. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. She deserves it. She does. And she was kind of the first person to do, like, the strip tease as an art. So she was, like, a serious artiste. Of course. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Oh, I also realized who I was thinking of. Who? Which is Carmen Miranda. I don't know who that is. That's another exotic dancer. Who is famous for her fruit hats and samba dancing. Oh, yes, I remember. We should add her to the list. Yeah. Why isn't she already on on the list? Because I clearly forgot who she was until just now. Okay, fair. I mean, it took me googling Spanish dancer with fruit on her head. (laughs) So you're forgiven. You know what? I'll take that. But during this time, she was living in Paris and World War I began. (gasps) The Great War? The Great War. (laughs) So Matahari was from the neutral country of Holland, and therefore, with her Netherlands passport, she could travel pretty freely still. And she was still traveling. Like, she was going back and forth to Germany, France, Switzerland, wherever she wanted to go. She was dancing. She was seeing her lovers. She was doing her own thing. She did not care that the war was happening. (laughs) Also, 
she had a Netherlands passport and went around saying that she was like an t- basically like an Indian deity. Mm-hmm. And people believed this. Mm-hmm. She was really hot. <laughs> <sighs> She also would not let something as silly as war stop her from <laughs> pursuing whoever she wanted to sleep with. She was sleeping with Germans, French, Russian, lots of officers. She really liked her army men. <laughs> she had one tour of the East Indies and she's like, yeah, this type works for me. Pretty much. Um, but also at this point, she was getting a little bit older and she couldn't make the big books as an exotic dancer anymore. Men suck, and, you know, it's really hard to age in the f- entertainment industry. True, but she she doesn't deserve that. She should be able to dance as long as she wants. I know. But other younger women had begun imitating her dance style, and, you know, more exotic dancers were popping up since she had shown how lucrative it could be. And these young women were getting the bookings, and she wasn't. <sighs> she created the art. And everyone else just copied. Yep. And at this point, Matahari began seducing high-powered men to make extra money. Oh, so that's where this is going. Yes. I like the lack of information you have on this story because there are just some wild twists and turns that I'm enjoying throwing at you. Yeah, why? <laughs> but her many lovers were giving her lots of jewels, and she was traveling from country to country with her trunks of clothes and jewels and furs and fancy things. She was doing fine. However, the fact that she was traveling around all these countries with all this nice stuff and clearly, like, getting money from somewhere really sketched out the allies. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So they put her under surveillance at this point. (laughs) You know that the person who was, like, in charge of that was like, this is the best job ever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Around this time, she also fell in love (gasps) with a Russian officer named Vladimir Demeslov, who had been injured on the front line and lost sight in one of his eyes. He was 21 years old and she was pushing 40. Ah, so we just went the exact opposite direction. (laughs) Pretty much. But however, this relationship is how she really started to get in trouble. Because she wanted to make enough money to support both of them since he was injured. And at this point, she accepted a job being a spy for France. <gasps> like Julia Child. <laughs> also, somewhere in this timeline, because the timeline of what happens in this like little chunk of time gets a little messy, but somewhere in here, she was traveling in Germany, and they confiscated a bunch of her jewels, furs, and valuables, and she was pissed. I mean, yeah, she worked hard for those jewels, furs, and valuables. Yeah, and they were mostly presents from her lovers, and they were worth a lot of money. And so during this trip, a German officer came to her and offered her 20,000 francs to bring back information for them about the allied officers she'd been sleeping with, and she took the money. She didn't actually do any spying for the Germans, she claimed. She considered it payment for all of the stuff they had taken, but at this point she had taken a payment from the Germans to spy. And I see how that could sketch out the allies even more. Yes. 
At this point, she had agreed to spy for the French. She had taken a payment to spy for the Germans. Um, and her handler, a French man named Georges Ledoux, came around and was pretty much like, so where's the spy information? And she was not a good spy, but she tried her <laughs> best for the French. She went and she seduced a German officer and took lots of notes about his correspondences and gave them back to Ledoux. And pretty much what we think happened is the German officer found out that she had been spying on him, but it's possible that he was just, like, bored of sleeping with her and wanted her gone. And he sent a very easily decoded telegram detailing Matahari's involvement with the Germans. Damn. So at this point, the French arrested her for treason on February 13th, 1917. Oh my god. <laughs> was this where you thought the story was going, Ellen? No. <laughs> but just the pettiness of sending <laughs> an easily decoded internal message knowing that it will get picked up so you don't have to deal with your ex anymore. <laughs> you know what? I hope that's what happened. I hope he had no idea she was a spy and he was just, like, done with her. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's funnier if he thinks that she is a spy because then he's, like, doing this on purpose to get the government to deal with her and take her away. Yeah... So we got to think about context. This was 1917. The French were really struggling in the war and they were looking for anyone to blame. They were scapegoating like all over the place. Anyone who could get scapegoated was getting scapegoated. Lots of people were getting called to spies. And Matahari herself was a very morally gray figure. She was sexually adventurous. She was a single woman. She didn't really keep men along for very long. She was the very first exotic dancer. Like, she is the definition of a sexually ambiguous, morally gray character in 1917. She's the OG femme fatale. Pretty much. And also, this was around the time of the Dreyfus Affair. Thank you. The newspapers began calling her the greatest female spy of the century. But she wasn't, No, she really wasn't, (laughs) That was Julia Child. Oh, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, in the end, this whole, like, shebang was probably just a distraction for French military losses on the Western Front to, like, kind of give the press something else to do so they wouldn't talk about how poorly the French were doing in the war. Yeah, so the French decided to pin the war troubles on the exotic dancer. Mm Mm-hmm. They're like, it's all her fault. Exactly. After being arrested, they kept her in a rat-infested prison where she was malnourished by the time of her trial. Like, visibly malnourished. Poor thing. I know. This prison was called Saint-Lazare, and it was in Paris. And it's, like, kind of known for being a not-great place to end up. The only person who was allowed to visit her was her lawyer, who was an elderly man who also happened to be a former lover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And her official charge was that she revealed secrets regarding the Allies' new technology, a.k.a. the tank, because the tank was the new technology of the time. That sounds fake. Like, not the tank part. I believe that the tank was the new technology. But the fact that she, A, shared it, B, knew about (laughs) it at all. Yeah, really, that's where I'm at. Like, you think Matahari gave 
two shits about the tank. Exactly. <laughs> and they just did, you know, that was just another bit of their propaganda. Where they're like, we're gonna put a, uh, we're gonna mention our tanks. <laughs> so they can put that in the news. But Captain Lord George Ledoux, a.k.a. her former handler, and Captain Pierre Bouchardon, Bouchardon. God, why is there so much French in these shows? Oh no. You thought the Dutch was bad. <laughs> George Ledoux and Pierre Bouchardon were her main interrogators, and they were not easy on her. They really, like, went at her in this interrogation. And they somehow got her to admit to taking the payment from the Germans. I mean, coerced confession is nothing to joke about. They, yeah. They'll get you to say anything after a while. Yeah, and Ledoux ended up being the prosecutor in her trial also. I don't know how French courts work, but that seems wrong. <laughs> did he have, like, a personal vendetta or something? I Like, he did. <laughs> There's, like, a TV miniseries or, like, a made-for-TV movie or something about this whole thing, and it's, like, about George Ledoux and Matahari's relationship, and he, like, actually had a personal vendetta against her. <laughs> God, this is even more petty than our German officer. I know. And, like, throughout the entire trial, Ledoux painted her as a slut. He, like, brought up all of her lovers, and he began claiming that the gifts from her lovers were actually payments from the German government for her services. The German government took all her gifts. I know! But... She had been paid by a bunch of German officials for sexual favors throughout the last few years, and so that doesn't look good. No. And Ledoux was able to claim that a regular stipend she was getting from a, fr- from a Dutch baron was actually a payment from her spy master. <laughs> and he refused to let her maid testify on her behalf, even though she was the one who was ta- like the middleman for the monthly payment and also lived with her and, like, knew what was going on in her house all the time. And he also wouldn't let the Dutch Baron testify. I mean, it's pretty obvious they had no interest in actually finding out the truth. This was a kangaroo court. It it was, like, an upsetting child to read about. (laughs) Because public opinion was against her from the get-go because of her loose, like, her quote-unquote loose morals. At one point, Bouchardon, one of her interrogators, said at her trial that without scruples accustomed to make use of men, she is the type of woman who is born to be a spy. (laughs) Oh my god, brutal. I know. And they're just glossing over the fact that they hired her. I know! They hired her to spy, and they're like, (laughs) the French suck. The French are the bad guys in this story. But... The all-male jury took less than 45 minutes to convict her. Uh, it's not even a jury of her peers. I know. Where are the suffragettes when you need them? <laughs> yeah, they were not touching this one with a nine-foot pole. But they defended Lizzie? Yeah, no, but Lizzie Borden was a nice Protestant girl. Keep going. Keep talking. I can't. <laughs> Matahari showed up to her execution in style. <laughs> She was dressed to the nines. She had a tri-point hat. She had a fancy blue coat. She was wearing fur. Like, she was like, if I'm going out, I am going out swinging. (laughs) Yeah, you're never going to get another chance to wear that. Yeah. 
She strutted up to the execution post, blew a kiss to her executioners, and refused to be blindfolded. This is amazing. Like, I hope that no one ever has to be killed by firing squad, but this is the only way to be killed by firing squad. Yeah. Also, why didn't they have a guillotine? This is World War One. But it's France! But this is World War One. France trumps World War One. Yeah, but we're like at least 50 years post-revolution. That's the word I'm looking for. You told me that the last guillotining was in like... It was in like the 1970s, 80s, something like that. Yeah. Well, you know what? She was killed by firing squad and she did it beautifully. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> On October 15th, 1917, this woman stro- like strutted up to her execution, blew her executioners a kiss, and said goodbye. <laughs> so you know what? We stan, I think. I, I stan Matahari. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure if she was a double agent spy or not, but like, I stan her. <laughs> And her name very quickly became synonymous with a femme fatale siren spy type figure. The New York Times wrote a four-paragraph write-up about her death and said that she was, and I quote, a woman of great attractiveness and with a romantic history. Oh my god. And to this day, people still debate whether she was actually a double agent or a German spy at all. I don't think she was. I don't think, like, she didn't care enough to be. But, you know, to each their own. Was she a double agent or was she just bad at her job? I think it's that one. There's also still some files about her case that are uh, sealed in the French courts, which, you know, not a lot of things from that time period are still sealed, so I'm sketched out that these are. It would depend on, like, when the files are from. Because if it's, like... Files from her interrogation, it would probably be something like, and then the flu hit her multiple times, and then she decided to tell us about the payment. Like, something. I'm, I'm guessing, quote, enhanced interrogation. Maybe. Oh, but, fun fact George Ledoux was later accused of treason. He was what? He was found with some sketchy evidence and some papers to the Germans, and he was never convicted, but he was charged. This puts a whole new light on things. Right? (laughs) Now I'm thinking, maybe she was a good spy, and Ledoux was just trying to stop her. Maybe. Or she could have just been bad at her job. These are equally likely. I mean, I like to think that she was just bad at her job because I like to think that she was, like, too romantic and sexual and, like, off doing her own thing to give, like, any cares to the French war effort. However, I also kind of think that George Ledoux might have been pinning some stuff that he possibly did on her. Oh, it all fits so well. So, you know who we don't stand? Ledoux? Yeah. If he was the spy, he could have told the Germans to write the very easily decodable message. Oh, this just 
This is a mindful. Oh, maybe, maybe it wasn't her German lover after all. Oh. Well, I'm going to have to think about this, and this will haunt me. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, and in 1931, Greta Garbo, who was like a huge starlet of the time, made the very famous movie Matahari. It is a like very old school spy fit thriller. It's considered like a classic of the femme fatale genre. And it paints Matahari as like a very nefarious character, like much more nefarious than she was historically. I mean, she was a woman who owned her sexuality. That's pretty nefarious, Sam. Fair. Um, but the reviews for this movie are really good, and I kind of want to watch it. And so that brings us to everyone's favorite point in these episodes, the quote wall. Oh, hit me. I am a woman who enjoys herself very much. Sometimes I lose, sometimes I win. Matahari would say that. Yeah. She said, death is nothing, nor life either, for that matter. To die, <laughs> to sleep, to pass into nothingness, what does it matter? Everything is, is an illusion. Oh my god. Is she okay? I mean, no. She said that one while she was, like, heading towards execution. Okay. She also said, I was not content to live at home. I wanted to live like a colorful butterfly in the sun. God, she's so on brand. Yeah. And then, last but not least, the dance is a poem of which each movement is a word. Sure about her. <laughs> uh, I stand her so hard. I can't even. <laughs> and that's Matahari. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. I knew almost none of this. And now I will be thinking about it for days. I'm glad. Let me know what you decide about George Ledoux. <laughs> so. Sam. Yes. Ellen. Poor Matahari's endeavors kind of exploded and you know what else <laughs> exploded i love when you try to transition <laughs> decided to lean into it i realized they were never gonna get better no <laughs> so another thing that exploded <laughs> stop laughing stop we have to get through exploded. this <laughs> was the Chernobyl nuclear plant. No, we're not doing Chernobyl right now. We're not doing Chernobyl. Okay. We're doing a very specific part of Chernobyl. You know what? I can handle that better than I can handle all of Chernobyl. Yeah, Chernobyl's depressing. Okay. So... Plus, I'm going to see Dune tonight. I don't have time for all of Chernobyl. Fair. Okay. So, April. Chernobyl. Happens. It's in Ukraine. It's a whole thing. So everyone's like, well, I guess we're not going to go back there ever. Yeah. But they do go back there. Well, workers do. Because, you know, they got to figure out what the heck happened. And a few months after the Chernobyl disaster, they discover this black lava flowing from the reactor core. Oh, God. It looked kind of like a volcano, but it wasn't. I don't like this. And they're like... It also looked kind of like an elephant's foot. I really don't and like that's this. that's the name. We are going to discuss the Chernobyl elephant's foot, the most dangerous substance ever. Well, can you go back to telling me ways, like, very specific ways I could die? I mean, 
You had a nice spray. I, I calmed it down for spooky season. You can only have so much spooky. Okay. In 1986, it was so reactive that if you stood in the same room with it for five minutes, it would just straight up kill you from radiation. Like immediately? Yeah, like five minutes and then you're dead. Like the 100 style where you just like get like boils on your face and like die? I mean, I don't think anything happens like the 100 style, but I guess that would be the closest thing. Okay, I, I really thought that that was like so far out there. What the elephant's foot ma- is made out of is so weird that they had to come up with a new name for it. It's called lava-like fuel-containing material. That's an awful name. Who? I know. Why did they let anyone name that? <laughs> why do they let scientists name anything? Scientists shouldn't be allowed to name things. We're too technical. <laughs> so LFCM for short. Essentially, what that has created is a substance called corium, which guess what is when the nuclear reactor core burns through. The reactor takes some of the stuff with it and forms corium. <laughs> There's is there please tell me the names get more creative than this. <laughs> like I can't handle Absolutely not. Lava like nuclear whatever and corium. <laughs> they do not get better. Cool. Please tell me they stop naming things. I think they do. Okay. I'll let you know. So corium has only formed five times outside of a lab. Once during Chernobyl, another time during the Three Mile Island accident in 1979, and three separate times in Fukushima in 2011. Oh, fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotta love it. Gotta... Mm -hmm. Yeah. However, Chernobyl is the only time where it, like, escaped the reactor... And was just out in the open, causing general problems for society. That's terrifying! Wow! It is. I don't <laughs> like that. No. So, I just kind of want you to imagine a 11-ton blob that will kill you if you stand next to it Didn't for five minutes. we, like figure out a couple episodes ago that I don't understand what a ton is. Okay, I want you to imagine something that weighs five and a half semis. Okay. That I can do. Okay. (laughs) And it's in a corner, and if you stand next to it for five minutes, it'll kill you. Okay, how big is it that it can be in a corner? Like, are we talking like a really big corner? It's really heavy. But it's not really big. It's, it's decently big. It's like... They've got some disturbing pictures of it. So, first off, they couldn't just take a picture of it. Because, you know, it would kill you. So they had to get these little robot... They had to, like, put the camera on a wheel and push it to take a picture. <laughs> Because they didn't have drones. <laughs> no, they did not. And they... I promise you they let a mechanical engineer figure that out. Like, 
putting a camera on a wheel and pushing it and probably putting like a string on it to get it back is 100% a mechanical engineer's plan. <laughs> yeah, that does seem like what you do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, by the 1990s, it had cooled down enough where like you still couldn't be in the same room with it for a long time. But they could get in the room to take pictures. Who drew the short straw that day? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, just like, there's one dude who just decided, yeah, this is my job now. I go in and out of the nuclear room. And he died very end of cancer? He is somehow, like, survived to a ripe old age. And died of cancer. (laughs) I will not accept anything except for this man died of cancer. Sam, I'm gonna tell you how old this man... (laughs) Have I derailed your segment enough yet? (laughs) This was never gonna go smoothly. Okay. How old did this man live to? (laughs) Also, I'm sure we're gonna have to put his picture up on the uh, gram because it's it's really freaky. Oh, God, what? Yeah, well, the picture itself is degraded by the radiation everywhere. Okay. So it's, like, all grainy, and he's running to go to- He was essentially taking a selfie. <laughs> he took a selfie with the elephant's foot? <laughs> he took the- He put the camera on a timer- ran from behind the camera to the elephant's foot and has this jacked up disturbing photo. You know what? Anyway. I respect that. (laughs) If you're gonna be in that room and take the picture, you might as well be in it. His name is Artur Korneveyev. And how old did he live to? You know what? He might still be alive. (laughs) I'm so sorry then. I I assumed he was already dead and I could make jokes about cancer. I couldn't. If you're still alive, I'm really sorry and I hope you don't get cancer. (laughs) In my head, Chernobyl's a lot longer ago than I think it actually is. But he did retire in 2014, so I guess he's fine. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I assumed this was happening in the 60s, but you definitely said the 90s. Yeah, I specifically started off with in 1986. The Chernobyl feels very far away. Like, temporally to me. I mean, it was when there was the Soviet Union. That was a pretty big thing. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I feel bad now. Alright, so I should have known this was never going to go smoothly, so we're just going to lean into it. (laughs) So, as we all know, bananas are slightly radioactive. Where is this going? (laughs) I've been told that that is apparently not common knowledge. But, like, why are we mentioning it? I thought we were talking about Chernobyl. There's a very tenuous connection between these two. Tell me. Bananas... Slightly radioactive, because they contain a little bit of potassium-40, which is radioactive. And there is a 
thing called the banana equivalent dose, where it's basically an informal measurement to put into perspective how radioactive something is when we compare it to how radioactive a banana is. For instance, a human is about 280 times more radioactive than a banana. So why don't we measure it by humans, then? <laughs> like, why are we doing it on bananas? They seem not very radioactive. This measurement is called a banana equivalent dose. So, obviously, my first question was, well, how many bananas is equivalent to the elephant's foot? Please tell me. <laughs> the answer is extremely high. But, like, how high? I'm gonna tell you! Ellen, you can't just leave me on a cliffhanger like this. It's not a cliffhanger if we're in the middle of a conversation. <laughs> At its peak, the elephant's foot was putting out 2.78 rads per second. Damn. Yes. And the banana equivalent dose is an extremely small amount of rads, but whatever. In order to be as radioactive as the elephant's foot, you would have to eat 28,284,062.5 bananas per second. What the actual? <laughs> That's so many bananas. <laughs> I know. Can you say that number one more time? I don't think it's so good. So, 28,284,062.5 bananas. Per second. Per second. To be as radioactive as the elephant's foot. You know, I can't compute a ton. I definitely can't compute... 28 million bananas per second. <laughs> Why do I keep thinking that these hyperfixations are going to go well? Because you say things and then I'm interested and then I have a quite and then I say things and then we just go through this every week. <laughs> it's called the chaos cast for a reason. It's fair. We are just here to cause chaos. <laughs> yes, you are. Does that give you a better idea of how radioactive either this thing or bananas are? Honestly, my first question is why are we measuring things in bananas if humans are 200 times more radioactive? Like, that seems like a bad measurement. <laughs> Second off, you keep giving me things that I, like, can't physically comprehend. What if that's how we solved the government cheese problem? If we just... Put all of the government cheese to soak up the radiation of the elephant's foot. I don't think that's how that works. Fine. <laughs> I don't think processed cheese just soaks up radiation. What can't it do? Be nutritious. <laughs> Alright. Slight wrap up, I guess. There is a scientist named Farmer whose job it is to figure out how to stop anything else like the elephant foot from happening again. Mitchell T. Farmer, to be exact. Quick question. Yeah. Where is the elephant foot now? How are they containing it? And, like, is it just, like, out there? 
Oh, it's still, it's in like a basement. It's in a basement. Like, so it melted through the floor of the reactor and just kept going and has been stopped for now in the basement. Okay, did they like lead line the room? I mean, no one is allowed to go into Chernobyl unless you're a scientist. Still? And they're very concerned about the groundwater, so they're always testing that. But, like, no one's still allowed to go into Chernobyl? I mean, no one's- you can, like- now it's safe enough that people can, like, do tours, like, under- like, for short periods of time, but no one's allowed to go into the radioactive nuclear plant where the most dangerous substance ever is. In my head, Chernobyl's, like, so long ago. I know it's not, but, like, in my head, I'm floored by the fact that we're still dealing with this. So, yes, it's there. If you went over there, it would still kill you. It's, like, less powerful than it was in 1986. So, like, now you could stay there for, you know, half an hour. But then you'd die. Casual. Yeah, so they're also very worried about nuclear dust from being around it because I guess water will like condense because this thing is so hot like in the room and then we have a bunch of nuclear particles everywhere so they just kind of put a lid over the new over Chernobyl that's how they solved the problem they said we're gonna put a little hat on it (laughs) okay that is how we are dealing with these problems. Modern problems require modern solutions, Ellen. Exactly. And also, don't eat 20 mi- 28 million bananas. <sighs> a second. Yeah. If you eat them over a longer period of time, you'll be fine. Yes. So, Ellen, what did you learn today? <laughs> I learned... Everything about Matahari. I learned that her children were poisoned. I like that you're as hung up on that as I was. <laughs> Makes me feel better. That shouldn't have just been casually mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. I learned that she spent all of the Great War, you know, flouncing around Europe, not being concerned about the, you know, war to end all wars. <laughs> I love that you exclusively refer to World War I as fun, fancy terms they used to use for it back then. Listen, I am nothing if not historically accurate. I also learned that she was kind of a spy, but she was bad at it. And she probably wasn't a double agent, but if she was, she was worse at that. And that she went out in style, baby. And that George Ledoux is a bitch. Oh yeah, I hate him. So, it seems like you learned something today. I did. I really thought you were going to also know about this, and I'd be like, oh man. (laughs) No, this one was new information. Usually your more violent and scary ones are, because I don't do that on my own. (laughs) But I learned about about the elephant foot. And that Chernobyl is so much more recent than I think it is in my head. It was in the 80s. People were wearing leg warmers. So, like, I 
I know the fact that it happened in the 80s, but I don't comprehend the fact that it happened in the 80s. <laughs> it's the same way that last that this month was October, but I did it took me till like the last two weeks of October to realize it was October. Are you okay? I'm in grad school. <laughs> Midterms are happening. I don't know how to eat 28 million bananas a second. <laughs> it's probably for the best. I feel really bad that I made jokes about that guy getting cancer. After a point, this entire thing just became an excuse for me to say 28 million bananas. That's so many bananas. Why do we measure radiation in bananas? Why isn't that common knowledge? Why doesn't everybody know about the banana equivalent dose? Maybe because you and me are giving off 200 bananas worth of radiation, so it's a stupid measurement system. Why are you so personally offended? I don't know, but I'm so personally offended by this. I don't know if we accomplished anything. Do we ever? Ladies and gentlemen, and both our moms who might be listening to this, (laughs) the stickers are here. They are physical, they are in my apartment, they are adorable, and you should get one. And you want to know how you get one? Ellen, tell them. You do a five-star review on anywhere. You do reviews, and then you take a screenshot and you send it to our email, which is chaospodcast21 at gmail.com. I'm so proud of you. I learned. You know our email address. You can also DM um, any of our socials with the picture. We are at chaospodcast on Instagram and at underscore chaospodcast on Twitter. Stickers are great. Get one. (laughs) All the cool kids are going to have them. Yeah. (laughs) And by all the cool kids, we mean our moms. My professor has one. She put it on her notebook. I did tell my entire lab group I have a podcast and make them all take stickers. I mean, of course. I told my entire house that I have a podcast, and they are tired of hearing about it. (laughs) To Ellen's housemates, who maybe listen to this, I'm sorry. I tried. (laughs) I mean, you tried. You encouraged this. I lived with you for two years. (laughs) (laughs) They can do it. That's our show. (laughs) I'm a delight to live with. She's a something. You know what? If you can get over the hair everywhere, Ellen is a delight to live with. (laughs) I got better about that. If I put it in a braid, it doesn't shed as much. Our living room had, like, two carpets. <laughs> Our actual carpet and then Ellen's hair. So we should end this. Yeah, this has been so, a really long outro. What do, what do we say? <laughs> We're just here to cause chaos. Thanks for coming. Safe travels, bye bye. It's colleagues, anything but lovers. History, it's lovers. Sidekicks, family, good pals, buddies, anything but lovers. History, it's lovers. <laughs>